Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Greetings. We're back, and you're back. So I've been trying to figure out how to make this opening part a little slicker, and I can't really figure out how to do it, so I'm just going to ramble a little bit here. Uh, This week... It's going to be a continuation of the discussion that Colin and I had last time. And uh, I was originally going to take the end part and sequester it in Patreon. But the end part is so freaking interesting. I think I'm going to present that part. I feel like it would be a pity to put it behind the paywall of Patreon because there's really not that many people who've signed up for that. And I want this to be available to everyone. So what I'm going to do, I think, is I'm going to release this last 40 minutes of what was a very long session, and I'm going to put the front end of it up on Patreon for a little while. So if you're really hot to trot and you really want to hear the beginning of the conversation that led to this, you can check that out on patreon.com slash taijireality, linked in the description. And... I'll probably release that at some point later on down the road. So if you don't want to throw down for a $1 a month Patreon support for the podcast, you can just wait it out and eventually you'll hear it. And if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it in other ways other than throwing down a little bit of, of the old fiat currency... um. I hope you'll consider sharing it. You know, hit the like button if there is a like button. I guess in in iTunes, if you're listening on iTunes, there's a star. And then you can actually write a review, which is supposedly really helpful. So if you want to do that, that would be awesome. Or you could send it to the various people. You You could blast it out to your social network if you wanted to. That might not be wise. You might want to be more selective about who you're going to recommend this to. Whatever it is you do, if you do find this enjoyable, you know, sometimes I wonder uh, how many of the people who listen to this regularly are actually listening because they want to or because they have to. I mean, it's my assumption that there are people who are assigned to listen to various things to just kind of make sure and check up on what, what's being done here and there. So I imagine there's a few of those involved, but I don't think they've signed up for my Patreon thing. So if you guys really want to know what it is that we're talking about, you better sign up on Patreon and get the stuff that you're missing. That's all I can say about that. Okay, so uh, that's the introduction. Here we go. It's uh, it's all kinds of stuff mixed into one great kind of pastry here. And uh, it's going to involve the trigrams. It's going to involve ideas within uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and Hegelian dialectic. There's a whole bunch of stuff that may require a little bit of background information. That I'm not going to give you. Some of it is in previous episodes, but you're just going to go for the ride and hopefully you'll get something out of it. And of course, if you have any questions, if you want anything clarified, you don't have to like promote this or donate. Just send a notice. Uh, what is it? It's silentassembly at protonmail.com. Actually, that's not fair. I'm going to put a few links in the video description for some background information. Uh, on some of the main themes that we're discussing here. Okay? I hope you find it interesting. I think it's a pretty good one. Enjoy. 
I think that the model of the trigram is super interesting and helpful in terms of clarifying what a lot of these, at least it gives you one really beautiful systematic approach to understanding what might be going on here. And what would you say is the best way to gain that understanding of the trigram? Uh, we'll take a look at the videos that I've made on it. Uh, okay. I will send you the link. I'll put the link in the description below. I have one explanatory video that describes the theory that I have about what the trigrams mean because there's really no agreement on what the trigrams actually mean. But they have a very long history and there's a number of things about them that are very specific that have been maintained irrespective of the field that they've been utilized in. And so they're, they're part of Chinese philosophy, they're used for feng shui, they're used for martial arts, they're used in Chinese medicine. There are some basics that everyone agrees on and then everyone disagrees about everything else. Hmm. And so my sense is that this was actually a code. A, it's very formalized and there's a reason why each line is either solid or broken and has the meanings that are associated with it that everyone agrees upon. And there's a reason why each one of them was put in the position that they occupy in the prenatal and postnatal arrangements. And I think that I have, if not discovered, then at least made up a consistent way of looking at it so that all of the... So that all the lines make sense and all the positions within the arrangements make sense. Cool. So that's, so that's in your that, videos? Yeah. So all I right. have an explanatory video that describes the, the basics of the theory. And then I have a bunch of off-the-cuff videos about some of the specifics of the mechanics and the way that you can view it in various ways. So, so as Ken Wheeler is to magnetism, you are to trigram. Would you say that's true? <laughs> you know... One of my projects right now is to try to incorporate Ken Wheeler's way of looking at things into a discussion of the trigrams. And I think it's I think it's possible. I've been Oh cool. I've been convinced for a while that there's a physical analog to what is essentially a study of mind states. And mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, my sense is that the ancients who encoded this had an unbelievable insight into the fundamental nature of being. And so it's almost as if it couldn't help but have a correlate into the physical domain. And I don't think that that correlate is the way that the traditional terms suggest because, you know, you have fire and so fire is a physical phenomenon. You have water, you have wind, lake, thunder, and mountain. All of those yeah. things are sort of physical things, but no, they're not. What they really are are poetic ways of describing states of mind. Yeah. But I think that what we're really talking about are the types of operations that can occur in conscious nodes that make up the networks that create the physical. And so if Wheeler is correct that fundamentally what we're talking about are field perturbations, mm -hmm. then... I think that there's a, a, a corollary here. And when I look at just kind of like on an overall instinctual level at the relationship between the pre and the postnatal, it suggests the relationship between counter space and space. Oh. And, and that because space is magnetism, right? Magnitude. And magnetism has a toroidal form with uh, geoprocessional movement. 
the mm-hmm. asymmetry of the postnatal suggests something along those lines. <laughs> you know, like it has a tilt. Mm-hmm. So the right hand rule describes the the direction of magnetic force around an electrical impulse, right? And yeah. then you have precessional movement that uh, kind of rotates the whole form. And I think that both of those things are built into the postnatal. Interesting. But I, I don't have a formal way of describing it yet. I've been playing around with it, and I haven't had enough time to really um, delve into it. Now, you know, it just... Well, I look forward to seeing the video on that. Yeah, I, I look forward to making it. It's going to be... Uh, it, I don't fully understand Wheeler. I feel like something is missing. You know, I find him to be a very aggravating dude. He He's, <laughs> he's just so, like, obsessed with how stupid everyone else is and... Yeah, it takes uh, his entire message. Like his whole video on free will. It really does. He believes in free will. And he he's even, I think he thinks humanity has free will, but he's just being so insulting. He basically has to go to the extreme where he says, humanity has no free will. But it's just an insult and it confuses everybody about what he really thinks. Yeah, about. I feel like something in his personality has undermined the integrity of his message. But there's something really... Yeah important in in the el, in the elemental message that he has but something is not quite right i can't put my finger on it so i have to i have to figure out what i think about his whole view of things before i try to do the correlation you know so i'm having difficulty with that mm. um yeah but you know it just occurred to me that we might wh- what do you think about the idea of doing a, just a, a minute of talking about something that's related to this whole whole issue that uh, and just sort of uh, making maybe that the separate thing so I, I have a particular topic in mind which has to do with what we're really talking about when we're talking about free will and the way that we relieve ourselves of the sense of the individuated ego postnatal state of being and move to the prenatal because the basic message, as far as I can tell, and it seems to work, is that the, the prenatal spiritual mode of being is accessed through the negation of thought objects, that the fluctuations of the mind are what trap us within a postnatal, self-oriented, um, running about, trying to preserve the physical domain. And that the mm-hmm. the actual exercise of the free will is not in creating an intention which is then realized in the physical frame, but rather the negation of the thought objects that would lead us to engage in those processes. So that is free will or that is an option of free will? I guess you could say it's an option, but I think that on the most fundamental level, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about free will. Because of all of the various experiments that are done about whether or not people have free will, it seems to me that the most clear evidence of free will is the stance of negation. (laughs) You know, so... If it so free will is being able to recognize illusion and dispel it. I believe that's the case. Interesting. Which is a hum it's a, it's it's taking a humble stance. 
it's it's recognizing humility as the fundamental, which is ironic, right? Because free will is thought of as being something which is an assertion of the self. Mm-hmm. But but I believe that in in the wisdom tradition and the deepening understanding that comes from a contemplation of the spirit, that the negation of the assertion of the self is the choice that is truly exercising free will. So our only choice is whether or not to recognize reality or to allow ourselves to be taken on a ride by illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's basically uh, maya or nirvana. <laughs> so, so are you saying there's no free will? If you're in the world of... Maya, which I think that means illusion. That's Maya, right? Yeah, that's right. So if you're in the world of Maya, then would you say at that point there is no free will once you've already made the choice to believe the illusion? No, because you can still make choices. It's just that those choices are going to lead to that kinds of outcome that makes Sam Harris dismayed and, and lead him to believe that there are no choices. <laughs> You know, (laughs) so I think that you're basically locked in in an exercise of hubris as if you could change the world. So so it's not that you don't have free will. It's just that the correct choice in a way is to reject the illusion and see what really is real. Yes, but of course, that's done within the context of realizing that even after that, the thing to do is to chop wood and carry water. So it's not mm. rejecting the Maya. What it is is it's standing back from it and seeing the properties of the Maya that everyone is wrapped up in. And because it's a consensual reality, it is a reality, right? Because we all sense it together. That's what consensual means. Yeah. So we all can agree. I can hand you an object and you'll say, oh, yeah, that's an object. And it has these properties, you know, and we can agree more or less that it has those properties and that it's an object that exists. And that's not going to disappear mm-hmm. the moment that you uh, enter the prenatal and recognize Maya as illusion. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I, recognizing illusion doesn't make the illusion stop, but you are basically seeing the prenatal in the postnatal. Yeah, and I think that maybe illusion is a really terrible translation of the word Maya. Um, my sense is that what they're talking about is. Uh, temporal transformation. And so it has to do with the degree of solidity of something, to the degree to which something can be relied upon, the degree to which something is actually solid. And so you could say that as you step back from the immediacy of your, um, of your involvement in Maya, you start to recognize that on the stretch of universal time, all of these things are slipping away. That all material can fit. This may seem like a solid table now, but what? It's going to last 100 years at the best, right? And it'll just end up mm-hmm. being a piece of rubble at some point and then eventually deteriorate into – and that's, you know, it seems like a solid object right now. But really 100 years, 200 years, that's a blink of the eye. So it's not a solid object. You know, it just has a temporary – uh, construction of solidity right now because of the particular configuration of uh, the relation between all of the different nodes involved, you could say. Yeah. And those are constantly mm-hmm. changing. So that's reality. Reality is that 
uh, all things are uh, slipping away and transforming. And uh, yet, it's not an illusion, really, right? It, the uh, the only part of it that's an illusion is the idea that it's solid. So the mistake, I think, is uh, to, the experience of the table is real. Yeah. So I think the mistake is to dismiss the material world as if it weren't real. I think that's a terrible mistake. You know, the material world is real. It's in a dialectical and necessary relationship with the spirit, because the 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 only thing that exists is understanding and substance. You know, you could say understanding is is uh, the domain of the spirit, and its substance is the domain of material. Now, understanding and substance are the same word. Understanding, substance, right? Understanding, it's a verb. Substance is a thing, right? So the act, yeah. you know, this is sort of the, the genesis of, this is something that one of my teachers, Bala, uh, Lawrence Lyons, it's, this is one of the core concepts that he works with. Um, the understanding is the thing which acts upon the substance. And that's, that was the motivation for that paper, uh, a, a universe of timeless change, whatever the hell I called it, metaphysical model for a universe of timeless change. Mm -hmm. the, the, the action is not time. Time is a construct within understanding. And then understanding has a dialectical relationship with substance that's mediated by energy. So understanding can mobilize energy to influence substance. And then the response of mm. the substance is then going to influence understanding. And that's the basic dialectic that's happening all the time everywhere, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that feedback loop is basically how our conscious experience in this moment is changing. Yeah. And it's also how we are influencing the present frame. Mm -hmm. So that's what our, that's what free will is doing. Free will is the decision when we're going to and how we're going to uh, influence the present frame with some kind of energetic expression, such as a broadcast of this podcast. So it seems like the, the universe, the universe is essentially a democracy where people can have different amounts of power in their vote. That's a very interesting observation. Um, you know, the word democracy means ruled by demons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a good system. <laughs> it's not quite right. Uh, de the demos is, I think, literally translated as nature spirit, which, which mm -hmm. I think actually, because the material mode of nature, the gunas, right? Uh, that's typically what motivates behavior and choice, right? Mm -hmm. Either desire ignorance or this sattva, the, the uh, chasing after illumination, you could say. So, so it so, seems like the word, the word just means things are influenced by spirits, not necessarily evil spirits. Yeah, I think that's basically right. So on some level, uh, democracy, I, I do think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting way of looking at it, that it is the model of the universe, but of course not all nodes are equal. Some have greater influence than others, yeah. so it's not as if it's it's not like one man, one vote, <laughs> right? It's and it's not not one yeah. consciousness, one one vote. 
it's uh you know some some nodes and some nodal networks you know it's it's a little bit more like citizens united <laughs> yeah you know it, there are there are i don't really i don't know much about oh, that citizens group. united is a is a is a law that was passed um oh boy i think it was i think it was during the bush administration the second bush the second uh that basically allows uh corporations to have the same protections as human individuals yeah oh, so it's very controversial and very kind of screwed <laughs> up but but in essence i can see why that kind of thing would start to happen because it, it's the aggregations of human beings that are starting to matter more than the individual you know that's yeah just like the cells aggregate into the individual precisely yeah it does seem like that's sort of a natural thing and um it's probably also natural to not like it yes exactly and you know this is also a big question like when it comes to free will could we have avoided this you know and my, my sense would be yes we could have made much wiser decisions and we we could have avoided this um dehumanization of the human condition but mm-hmm. but we didn't you know we're, we're not as smart as we think we are because hubris <laughs> i think because hubris would make a great t-shirt uh <laughs> okay i think i'm gonna have yeah. to well, i'm gonna make that a uh, an okay. offering in the uh, patreon <laughs> account <laughs> nice love it <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Maybe I'll just do that instead of sequestering episodes. But, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it seems like hubris is just making that, or a result at least, from making that choice to be taken for a ride by the illusion. Come again, one more time. Sorry. Well, it seems like hubris, when we're talking about humanity, its situation being caused by hubris, it seems like hubris is a direct result of, I mean, you were, we were just talking about how the perfect free will choice, or at least, I don't know, I don't know what, what we would say initially, but at least it is a choice to not be fooled by the illusion and right. to see things from the prenatal. And so really the mistake is, and you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it a mistake, going for a ride is fun, but- right. <laughs> The mistake was choosing to go for a ride, and the natural result of that was eventually, if not immediately, hubris. Well, yeah, it's interesting, although you could say that nothing would have happened if no one had ever made the choice to go for a ride. So there's a fascinating... So existence itself is hubris? (laughs) Kind of, yeah. There's a fascinating... So Rudolf Steiner, who is not someone who I really have an easy time with, I'm not a big fan, but there are some things that he draws out that are really fascinating. And uh, Judah, who's the um, who's the other originator of the Assembly of Silence, uh, mm-hmm. he's a, a big Steiner guy. He really knows Steiner work a lot. So we've mm-hmm. talked about it quite a bit. And there is a idea that I, I'm not really fully equipped to express, but it's basically that it's like a cosmology of ontology that, 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 uh, that there was this process of falling away from the unified sense of being that brought things into mm-hmm. existence. And that originally mm-hmm. it was an enthusiasm. So you could imagine that you have a being and that that being is, in essence, the only thing happening. It's basically mm-hmm. a being in dialectic with 
the potential of non-being because there's nothing else. So the only other thing to consider is non-being. So the possibility of non-being creates a negation because the fear arising from a being that is experiencing only non-being will produce something other than non-being and thus creation occurs. Oh, fear. I would have called it boredom. Do you think it's fear? I think it's fear because think of what it's like to be completely alone with nothing to interact with and only your sense of being. And then to realize within that, that the only thing to contemplate is a non-being, which is striking at the core of your being because it's a negation of your being. I think that that is a basic psychological condition and that it would produce a phenomena within the being that could be contemplated other than negation of being. So would you say that that is the default, the basic state of God then, basically just complete terror of himself? I would say complete terror of of the womb within which he finds himself, which is nothing but darkness. You could say that that's Shekinah, that's the fundamental feminine, the, mm. the, the envelope, the thing which, which mm. the matrix within which the being exists. So all of creation is God running from the truth. Maybe. <laughs> who, who, who on earth could say yes? Who on earth could say yes I'm to gonna... that? I don't know. <laughs> but, but just to, to draw the picture a little bit further, what happens after that is when there's a thing to contemplate other than non-being, there's an enthusiasm for that that gets stricken, uh, that wells up within the creator. And that mm-hmm. that enthusiasm, you could say, because there's nothing else but, but the being itself, the being is essentially contemplating itself because it doesn't want to contemplate the negation of being. So the reflexive mm. aspect of being is the first act of creation. And so what happens is there's a separate separation within the being of the thing that it's contemplating and the thing that's doing the contemplating. So there you have your understanding and your substance. And originally the substance is like a dream. It's a, it's a wisp. It's actually represented by the thunder trigram in the prenatal, which is in the uh, the northeast position, so just below the horizon line. So it's on the way up towards being in the east, which is the rising. And in the east, what rises is fire because it's desire. It wants to believe in this thing that it imagined. And that's where enthusiasm becomes, um, what's the word? There's a word that, that Steiner uses that's perfect. Oh, I can't remember the word right now. But basically, it's Oh, exousia, exousia, it's something like that. Like the enthusiasm for the image becomes so great that the, the part of, of, the, of the conscious being that's involved in it takes it as being real. And then... Yeah, because it's salvation from its, the original state of... Precisely. It's other being something it's totally terrified about. So it creates within itself, divides itself... Right. ...to create a different other. Exactly. And that 
saves it from its dilemma, from its horrible <laughs> existence. And it's so excited. And so then part of it is now existing within these forms that it itself created. Mm. And so you could say mm -hmm. that there is a continual subdivision occurring within um, a subdivision process of subdivision and aggregation occurring within the domain of substance. And the substance is what the enthusiast, you know, the imagination starts, right? And then they get enthusiastic about it. And that is kind of sequestered away from the essence of the being. Yeah, it's like it's pushed out like energy. I mean, uh, yeah. Ken Wheeler, I think, calls it the impotence, right? It's, it's, it's no longer the potential energy. It's actually the loss of potential. Yes, he calls it the loss of inertia. And so counterspace yeah. is the original observer being. Mm -hmm. And then yep. space is, in essence, the, uh, the portion of the, of the being that got involved in its imaginations and, and became so enthusiastic that, the, that reality kind of substantiated itself. Yeah. And here we are playing that same thing. And so it's- And it didn't just, it just didn't just divide itself into the two parts, the experiential self and the physical world. It, it divided its experiential self into many different experiencers. Yes, that's right. So you could say that there's a, a cascading network of imagination, enthusiasm, and then concrete. So it's sort of like a Hegelian dialectic. So Hegel says, mm -hmm. you've got your um, abstract, right? The abstract is this imagination, right? That in, in, in this sort of uh, dialectical materialism, they call it thesis. And then you have the negation of that. They call it the antithesis. And the negation of the, of the um of the imagination is the same as the negation that happened within the original being. It has to do with the fear of, yeah. oh fuck, what if, you know, what if that sense of being that I just imagined is extinguished? And that's what the develops mm -hmm. the enthusiasm for it. That's what develops the, the locking in, and that's where the concrete comes from. That's the, that's the synthesis. So you have so when this when it when this all comes to its conclusion and we're returned to that original state, do you think it always is going to be a? I mean, there's kind of this idea that when everything comes to a conclusion, that we'll all be relieved. But under this model, it seems like we're all going to be like, "Oh fuck, get me back into that illusion." <laughs> so I think the last video that I made about the trigrams is about. I had this guy asking me these questions about. Um, whether or not the motion within the arrangements would reverse itself. And I was mm. thinking about it, and uh, at first I thought, that ah, doesn't make any sense. I don't see why they would. But then I remembered this quote from a Philip K. Dick book. Um, he has an incredible book. It's very interesting. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about right now is woven into it. And at the end of the book, he has a section called Tractate Scriptica Cryptura. It's, and it's referred to in the body of the book, which is kind of like a, an ordinary, pulpy Philip K. Dick novel. It's called Vallis. And at the end, he has this mm -hmm. philosophical, hardcore philosophical 
treatise that weaves together a bunch of different ideas throughout history, including a lot of Gnosticism and some ancient Greek, which is, you know, similar to Gnosticism. And, um, and it's an incredible thing. And one of the things that he uh, suggests is that the ancient thinkers understood that real time is moving retrograde to our time. And so that what we're actually doing is we're moving towards the unity that we think of as having preceded our being. <laughs> it's, it's a total, I mean, Philip K. Dick, I've, I'm sure you know of his stuff. And the one thing about his work that seems to be a through line is that it fucks with your mind. Like he really mm. knows how to get into the head in such a way that you just can't quite see reality the same ever again. And so I was thinking about that, that passage and I realized that it actually makes a lot of sense. There's something incredible that happens when you look at the prenatal as moving in the reverse direction. And I will just leave it at that because it's way too long and complicated to get into here and you can see it in that video. Um, but it blew my freaking mind. So I'll be able to see it in your video? Yeah. Okay. So I have, I have like one video, which unfortunately has a robotic voice narration. I apologize for that. I was just, I could not figure out how to narrate it by myself. So I ended up using this fake Irish female voice, which you know, <laughs> it's not, not too bad. But, uh, and then the rest of them are just me you know, rambling on about various aspects of it. And the last one has to do with this. And so the question is like, okay, if we're talking about time as if it were a timeline, you know, then it seems to have a direction to it. But the problem with that is that there's no evidence for an actual real timeline. You know, there is no real existing past and nor is there a real existing future. Because if they were real and existing in the same way that the object that I can hand to you is real and existing, then we would have an absolute confusion of being. So yep. past and future are clearly abstractions within the mind. And so what are we talking about when we're talking about a direction of time? You know, what we're talking about is an attitude towards being. So you could say that fundamentally the only thing that determines which way we're moving in time is whether or not you think we're in the prenatal or in the postnatal. If we're in the prenatal, then we're heading towards a unified sense of being. That's the direction of time, the true direction of time, because we're recognizing the totality of things. Whereas if we're in the postnatal, we, we could say, well, that's the uh, uh, loss of inertia, state of being mm -hmm. where thermodynamic processes are in effect, and therefore we are kind of dithering and degenerating ourselves into ever more, <laughs> you know what I mean? So- yep. I think that state of mind is the essential question here. You know, it, it brings me back to the concept of, uh, it, it was said that some of the spiritual practices, people would meditate and get their minds in the right uh, alignment so that the universe would hold together. You know, there's that that idea is is represented in this crazy movie that's a very interesting movie called The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. It's uh 
it's one of those um what's that guy's name uh he was one he used to be uh, a member of monty python um mm-hmm. it's it's one of his films it's very fantastical but it's a really interesting film but it's also uh a jewish tradition the idea was that you know the men would go and spend countless hours in shul praying and and discussing the finer points of torah and uh and and really like spending their energy in their spiritual practice to hold the universe together yeah i i think there's there's some truth to that again it falls into the category of i can't say that that's true but it makes the most sense to me of anything it fits into that picture of like yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah i feel that too and uh even if there is, you know, a lot of people who are doing that, using their energy in that way to maintain the universe. The universe would probably still eventually re- reach a point of kind of falling apart. But it seems like the more people and for longer that people are actually maintaining that practice, that the actual universe itself could be maintained for longer. Well, how and do you I distinguish uh, between falling apart and coming together? You know, so that's the thing about Shiva, right? So Shiva is the, the, the creation destruction process and Vishnu is the maintainer. So Shiva is constantly transforming. It's like fire in essence, right? So, mm-hmm. so the, the middle line, which is the present, is yin. It's changing. So the present is ever changing in the face of creation destruction. So if we were heading towards thermodynamic... Uh, like um, increasing entropy, uh, thermal death type of end of the universe uh, scenario, that would involve a lot of uh, destruction and changes and blah, blah, blah. But also if we were going the other direction, if we were going back towards a unified state of cosmic being, if such a thing is possible within a physical frame, um, that would also involve a lot, you know, because a lot of structures would fall to the wayside in the process of heading in that direction. So I think that we're, I think that we're, we're, we're dealing with a dialectic. We're dealing with a uncomfortable, um, bound oppositional relationship between substance and understanding that there's an inverse relation between the two, that it's mm-hmm. a mirror, right? It's the, 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 connective point between um, counter space and magnetism is an inversion. It's like yeah. charge, right? So charge is leaning one way or the other. Like a, a mirror is basically, you see something and then it's the opposite thing on the other side. So that's mm-hmm. what char- charge separation is, taking something and pulling it apart so that there's two pieces that fit together but by themselves, they're like incomplete and they need to run and try and find their opposite. You know, it's sexual mm-hmm. attraction, if you like, you know? Yeah. And that's the basic fundamental engine of being. And I don't know that anything could actually terminate one way or the other. I think that there's a self-correcting mechanism within all of that that would prevent it from going too far to one side or the other. Because of that existential... So you don't think there's, there's, ever a, there's never a state where things return to the original situation like with god where god was just in fear well you could say that everything is always returning to the original situation that the original situation is built into the mechanism of everything that occurs you know so 
Yeah, on it's some level, like it's happening every frame of existence. Yeah, because when we talk process. about original situation, we're looking at it as if there was a timeline and there was something that happened way, way, way before. But that's not how yeah. it seems to work, right? The the original situation yeah. happened now, just like the shit that's happening now is happening now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it may be mm -hmm. that that the thing that we're calling original situation was a consequence of some other thing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's yeah. there's no way to penetrate that veil. It's it's beyond our our even even a realm of speculation. It's a it's a it's a known unknown, you could say. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that was an awesome section. <laughs> <laughs> do you like the fact that there is a unknowable, or do you find that? Oh yeah, I mean. The unknowable is what keeps you searching, <laughs> you know, and, and for those well, of us who The reason you want to search is because you want to know the unknown. But so it seems like innate in the whole search for the what can be known is this ultimate frustration. <laughs> You're just going to fail no matter what. Up to the point where you realize that the best thing that you can know is that there's always going to be a realm of unknown that's far greater than any realm that you'll be able to know. Yeah. And then it just becomes interesting and enjoyable and, um, and, and it deepens, you know, because if you think that you're going to somehow or another be able to get the whole enchilada, mm -hmm. you're going to be completely, not only frustrated, but you're going to just come to conclusions that are insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, so you better enjoy the fact that, that most of this is unknown. And that's why I try to make very clear distinctions between when I'm saying this is what makes sense to me. And this is true. Yeah. I, I really try to, to, you know, a lot of the things that I say, I cannot claim that they are true. I can only say this is what makes sense to me. But I think we can just assume that that's what you mean. So you don't have to use unusual language. But I guess that's dangerous. I guess so. But it seems like in general, th there's, a, there's a misconception that when someone says something, it, they think that it's the truth. You know, it's like why people will constantly say, uh, in Twitter, they'll be like, well, retweets don't necessarily mean endorsements, right? So it's like, yeah, I think that uh, it's worth pointing that out when you're presenting something publicly. Yeah, that's why I don't like having to do it every time I'm talking about something. So the reason I, that's why I put the, I have a disclaimer before all my videos, which says I'm probably wrong about something I say yeah. in this video. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And then, and, then, and then I'm free to talk however I want to talk. Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's perfect. It's it's. Uh, I should probably include something like that <laughs> in the assembly of silence. Yeah, it's useful legally too. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Boy. <laughs> uh, well, I can't believe it. It's like twelve fifteen. I, I yeah. should probably start doing something else. But this was a, a really incredible pleasure. Thanks so much. Yeah, for and, me as uh, well. I look forward to next time. Okay. Well, let me know when you're available, and uh, and we'll just schedule another time. Perfect. All right, beautiful. You take care. Yep, sounds good. See you next time. Okay, adios. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember.
turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>